overpopulation and you know all this kind of crazy stuff it really shows you that they are worshiping the creation rather than the creator i mean if you understand population at all you know that two-thirds of our planet isn't even populated i mean it's it's a stunning thing to to comprehend and then brother dean as you mentioned in your prayer brethren this is why we are still protesting we are still protesting um because I've said a hundred times, if they could, they would. They would still do what they did back just a few hundred years ago to the Protestants. And so uh, I'm thankful this, this evening that uh, the Lord has been so gracious to us that he would indeed call us to be protesters, to be Christians, to be Bible Christians. And so turn with me, if you would, this evening to the book of Revelation. And uh, we'll be reading this evening verse chapter 14 verses 17, 18, and 19. And then, Lord willing, we'll get into chapter 15, verse number 1, just a little bit this evening. Brethren, here are the very words of God himself, the one whom we have trusted and believe in. And, uh, oh, oh, the planet's going to be changed forever at his command. Amen. And it will not until he commands that. And here we are tonight, verse number 17 of Revelation chapter 14. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud voice to him that had this sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by a space of a thousand and sixteen hundred furlongs. Well, brethren, you remember, we're right in the middle of a text where the Holy Spirit of God has led John to really use, if you will, some agricultural metaphors to uh, help us understand what exactly God is going to be doing and what he is doing here in our text. And remember last week when we were together that verses 15 and 16, we saw where uh, John was led to use the grain harvest as a metaphor concerning the judgment of God and the reaping and the, as Jesus is going to come again, not as a savior, but as a reaper. And he's going to indeed do exactly as the scripture said. And as John previews him here and sees him in his second coming, in his glory, in his great power, again, he uses this second metaphor here, which indeed is, brethren, the metaphor of a grape harvest. And it, it does represent, and we're going to get into this as we move along later on in chapter 16 and 17, it does indeed represent, it is a pre-shadowing, if you will, of the battle of Armageddon and the great carnage, brethren, that is going to be taking place when the Lord comes again to set up his earthly kingdom. And it's interesting here how John in verse 17, he speaks of another angel. And these angels, God has been using these angels to, to meal out, if you will, portions of his judgment. And here we see that the first angel in verse 17 came out of the temple. And of course, that is the heavenly dwelling place of God. I mean, this is where God dwells. That's where holiness reigns supreme. And so he first sends an angel from the temple. And then we notice again there that there's another angel in verse 18 that comes out from the altar. And of course, he fire is mingled and mentioned there as well. And 
Of course, fire is always associated with God's judgment. And so this is what we're previewing. This is what we're, again, seeing according to what John is writing by the inspiration of God. And so what we want to see tonight, again, is just this preview of this great battle, the battle of Armageddon, if you will, that we see spoken of so many times in Holy Scripture. And I want us to see this together this evening. So turn with me, if you would, this great battle that John is, is a previewing for us as the Lord comes. Turn to Joel, if you would, with me this evening again. These glorious Old Testament books that uh, God has uh, put in, in, uh, in, the, in the text of Scripture. And again, these Old Testament books that we should never unhitch from, they do speak gloriously of, of uh, if you will, the, uh, the now but not yet kind of uh, biblical truths that we see throughout the Old Testament. And Joel here is, is in this mode as he writes these portions of Scripture that it's now but not yet. And so as we move into the book of Revelation, these things that we see now are going to be coming to fruition. That's the beauty of Scripture. That's one of the things, brethren, that separates Holy Writ, the Bible, the God of Christianity, the, the God of Holy Writ, that separates him from every other quote-unquote book. Amen? And that is pre-written history. That is prophecy. Those are things that he has written hundreds of thousands of years before, and then as we see them unfold, they come to pass exactly as he said. Only God can do that. Amen? Only God is, is in complete sovereign control of history. So we're reading tonight some pre-written history concerning what is going to be taking place here in the book of Revelation, thousands of years later, still to unfold yet in our future, brethren, and yet, but yet we know for sure that as God has said it, it will indeed come to pass. Look at Joel chapter 3, and again, this, this, uh, this battle, this great carnage that's going to be taking place from the north to the south, as we're going to see the 1,600 furlongs, we're going to Look at that and see how precise and how exact that that terminology that John uses really is this evening. Look there at verse number one. And again, we see this great battle. The last, really, you can title Joel chapter three, the, the last world battle. And it's not, uh, it's not countries against countries. It's evil against good. It's, it's, it's Satan against God. This, this is really where it ends up being and where it's going to come to pass. Verse number one, for behold, in those days in that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And brethren, as you look in scripture, you'll see that the valley of Jehoshaphat is really what the Bible we're going to see calls the plain of Armageddon. And that's very important. The valley of Jehoshaphat, it's called here, and will plead with them, and therefore my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Look at verse 3. And they have cast lots for my people and have given a boy for an harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Verse 4, very important. Again, this gives us the lay of the land. This gives us the geography of where this great battle is going to be contended and where it's going to take place. Look in verse number 4 there. Yea... What have ye to do with me, O Tyre and Zidon, and all the coasts of Palestine? Will you remember me in recompense? And if I recompense me swiftly and speedily, will I return your recompense upon your own head? And so again, we see this terminology. We're going to see again the geography as it begins to lay out there. Look at verse 11 of that same chapter. So we see the valley of Jehoshaphat. We see the Lord mentioning Palestine here. And look at verse 11 there, if you would. Look what it says. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves 
uh, together round about. Thither cause thy might ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There it is, the plain of Armageddon. He's gathering and calling these heathen together as he's going to destroy them. And there's going to be a bloodbath like you've never seen. Look what it says there. Come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there will I sit and judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. There it is again. This is the, when the Lord comes and this great battle takes place as he prepares for his kingdom to be set up. Come, get you down, for the press is full and the vat fats overflow, for the wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. There it is again. There's a time that's coming, brethren, when the decision will have to be made. Again, another terminology there, if you will, the valley of judgment literally is what that means, the valley of decision, the valley of Armageddon, the valley of Jehoshaphat, all this general geographical area that we're going to see here as the Lord gathers them together. Look there as we finish that up. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And again, we see Joel here as God is leading him to write about future events. Things are going to take place. And these are the things that John is writing about in the book of Revelation as we have seen them unfold together. Now, look here again. Joel speaks of this. John now is giving us a preview of this. Look at here in Revelation chapter 16. Look what the same terminology that's used concerning this battle that John is previewing here for us. Look at Revelation chapter 16. Look at verse number 16. Again, we see these things as they unfold in Scripture. The Bible says, And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. There it is. That's the, that's the valley. That's the same thing that Joel was writing about. These, these people are being gathered together. He's gathering together to slaughter them one from another. Now look, look back at Revelation 14. Look at verse number 20 again. This is all tied together. These things are all neatly fit together by the Holy Ghost as we uh, see what God is doing as he moves as we get into chapter 15 where things really start to unfold. Look at verse number 20. Look at what it says there. And the Lord says, And the winepress was trodden without the city, and again, brethren, we have to consider Jerusalem as the city, the city of God, the city of David. This is the city that the wine press is outside of. So God is protecting the city of Jerusalem. And you see here, and blood came out of the wine press, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Now, again, this is speaking of God, as he comes and the angels with his sharp sickle, he tosses the grapes into the vine vat. Jesus comes along and he just absolutely presses them out. The blood, the Bible says here, will, will flow to a certain degree. Now, John uses that terminology here, a furlong. Anybody know how long a furlong is? Well, a furlong is about 606 feet. You take that times 1,600, which is what John says, 1,600 furlongs, that gives you 969,600 feet. When you divide that, again, I'm not a math wizard, but I just simply, all right, I'm going to figure this, I'm going to calculate this out and see what he's talking about. And you divide that by what? 5,280 feet, which is a mile. That gives you about 184 miles. This is what he's saying. 1,600 furlongs. This is the, the plain of Armageddon. This is Palestine. This is where this stuff begins. And when you consider the valley if you will, of Armageddon, 
That is in North Palestine, which is what Joel said. That's what Joel's talking about, North Palestine. This is where it starts, amen, there. And then he gives us, again, the geography. It's an amazing thing. The Valley of Jehoshaphat is in the south. So you've got north, you've got south. And does anybody want to take just a wild guess this evening, brethren, how far it is from the north to the south where, where John says this battle's going to rage? Anybody have any idea? It's 184 miles. It's 1,600 furlongs. This is what we're talking about. This is the preciseness of Holy Writ, brethren. This isn't just flopped in here. This is something that's geographical. This is something that's true. This is something that he has revealed to us, that from Palestine in the north to the valley, to the valley of Armageddon in the south, that's where this is going to flow, and it's going to flow along in this complete plain, if you will, if you will. Like I said here in my notes to my brain, I've got to have notes nowadays. I can't remember everything. In other words, the battle and carnage will rage across the entire plain. There will indeed, brethren, be a bloodbath, something like the world has never seen. We talk about communists. We talk about, you know, having an unholy worldview. And that, well, I think it was Gina and Vicky, we were talking just a little while ago, that isn't it funny how all of these, these, uh, these slaughterings and all these things always get blamed on Christians, right? The religion is the cause of all of this, but... Most of the killings and the murderings that have taken place, I don't think Pol Pot was a Christian, do you? I don't think Adolf Hitler was a Christian, do you? I don't think so. And they've killed millions and millions of people here, brethren. This is, that, that's, that's an absolute blip in the eye compared to what John is writing about here concerning with the Lord when he gathers them together to bring about his wine press, to bring about his judgment upon the world and upon those who have indeed rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. This, if you will, brother, in this bloodbath in the suburbs of Jerusalem, again, around Jerusalem, not Jerusalem, he will protect. It's outside the city, John says. Amen. It will indeed flow throughout the length of Israel. In fact, Isaiah, this is the beautiful thing, brother, and again, about understanding what the Old Testament is and understanding what the New Testament is, and that the New Testament is what inspired commentary on the Old Testament. Many times, that's what you have. You have the Old Testament, God speaking it and saying, this is what's going to happen. Then he brings it to pass, and then he inspires men to write about what he wrote about back hundreds of years earlier. And all that does, brethren, is what? It affirms God's holiness. It affirms his sovereignty. It affirms all of these things concerning this. Now, look what Isaiah said. It's, you know, not just Joel... It's not just Isaiah. It's not just Daniel. There are so many of these things that are woven together throughout Holy script, script, Scripture, brethren, that it is impossible for men to even begin to try and weave something like this together. It is indeed the work of the Holy Ghost, the God himself, through the Spirit of the Holy Ghost, carrying these men to truthfully bring and tie these things all together. Look at Isaiah chapter 63. He writes about this as well. In fact, he mentions Basra. And if anybody knows where Basra's at, I wish I had a map I could show you. But again, he affirms what John has said. He affirms what Joel has said. He affirms what Daniel speaks of. But look here, Isaiah, the great Old Testament prophet. Look what he writes here in Isaiah chapter 63. Turn there, if you would, for just a moment. Keeping in mind the blood's going to flow. Keeping in mind that the blood is going to be splattered everywhere, I promise you, that it's going to be. And look here, what Isaiah, hundreds, 
thousands of years before this. I mean, it's thousands of years now past the church, and it hasn't happened yet. Just imagine the technical and the, the oversight of God in all of this, seeing that it comes to pass. Here again, Isaiah writes when Christ returns that he's going to bring judgment, and he's also going to deliver, which we've been seeing uh, as we've seen so far. But look there, if you would, at verse number 1. Isaiah asks a question, and he asks a good question that we need to answer in verse number 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? That's a, that's a very good question, isn't it, brother? And who is it? Who is it that's coming from Edom who's coming with dyed garments from Basra? Who is it? That is, uh, that, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I speak that, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Listen, verse 2, who is it? Of course, it's Christ. It is a prefigure of Christ and, and his judgment and what he's going to be doing and what's going to be happening when he comes. Wherefore, art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments, like him that treadeth in the wine fat? There it is again, speaking of the sprinkling of the blood. It's an amazing thing, brethren, how this is all knit together. This is the bloodbath beyond bloodbaths concerning God's enemies. Look at verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone. Who alone, brethren, has trodden the winepress of God? Who? None other than Christ himself. Amen? He alone took the judgment and the wrath of God on the cross. Amen? This is speaking of an outward thing. This is the outward going of the, of the treading of the winepress of God. Look at that. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled, brethren. Do you see that there? This is a bloodbath that he's talking about. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. So we see judgment, we see redemption, we see all of this here that the Lord is going to be doing when he comes. Look there at verse 5. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me in my fury. It upheld me, and I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Brethren, again, Isaiah is simply being consistent with what is going to take place. And this is interesting. <laughs> I was reading, again, the little booklet that Brother Dean had uh, written concerning the gospel. And it's interesting in there that, <laughs> Brother, I'm sure you remember, talking about us presenting the right and proper God in Christ. Amen? There's been a tilt in the world where God is just a God of peace. Jesus is just a Jesus of peace. That's all he wants is peace. And brethren, nothing could be further from the truth. He is the God of peace. He's going to bring peace. But brethren, there is another side to him, the side that we're seeing here in Revelation. And that is a side of judgment, a side of fury, a side of anger against the enemies of God to shed their blood. Look at Revelation uh, chapter 14, or excuse me, chapter 19. Look there, if you would. Keeping in mind here what Isaiah just wrote, he has trodden the winepress alone, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. That's what Isaiah wrote concerning the Christ. Look here as we peer just a little farther into the book of Revelation of things 
as this battle really is beginning to heat up. Look here what John writes again in, in Revelation chapter 19. Look what it says. Here it is again. And this again is a picture, a precursor to the coming of Christ in his glory. Look at verse number 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and in his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but himself. And he was clothed with the vesture, what? Dipped in what? Dipped in blood. There it is, brother, and this is the idea. This is what John is talking about, this great and glorious judgment that God is going to unleash upon those who have rejected him is a most stunning thing for us to understand. A most stunning thing for us to grasp and to get a hold of. In fact, I like what one pastor said concerning this. One reason this intervention of Christ will come upon an unsuspecting world is because much of the teaching concerning the Lord Jesus reduces him this, brother, this is literally what you were saying as I was reading that today. I said, oh, it was providential that I read this again to remember this in my mind. It is because of much of the teaching concerning the Lord Jesus reduces him from his full three-dimensional Godhead into a one-dimensional purveyor of peace. And this is something Brother Dean wrote about. We've got to present the proper biblical Christ. There's two sides to Christ. It's amazing. In our modern age, he says, of self-esteem and psychobabble. Because <laughs> what we heard tonight, you know, if we got our governor standing up talking about 63 billion years ago or whatever it is, and when he was in high school, he was worried about overpopulation, that's pure psychobabble and unholiness. That's all it is. Talk of judgment is very unwelcome. <laughs> Talk of the judgment of God to those around you and see how welcome you are. It's very unwelcome. And study of prophetic passages, especially those from the Old Testament, the ones that we've been reading tonight, is both unpopular and considered highly irrelevant by most of the church today. It's a stunning thing. As a result, he says, brethren, think of this for a moment, having a good biblical balance of the God of, of the Bible. He says, as a result, many have created a loving Savior who judges nothing and judges no one. And brethren, nothing could be farther from the truth. Nothing could be farther from the truth. He will judge everything in righteousness, and he will judge everyone in righteousness. It's a stunning thing. And so John here has been led by the Spirit of God again to give us a glorious preview of what is coming. And I'm so grateful tonight that the Spirit of God would be so gracious to us. Now look back there, Revelation chapter 15. Look at verse number 1. We'll spend a little time here, by the way, in the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation, eight verses, and it's an amazing thing what gets revealed by John in these short eight verses. It's a stunning thing. Look at verse number 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. 
What an amazing thing that John is doing here. Again, as I said, it's the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation. And in these short eight verses that we're going to go through, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks, God has been so gracious to allow us to see another vision of heaven. Again, brethren, we see the earth. In the book of Revelation, this is how it goes. We're seeing a view of the earth, then we're seeing a view of heaven. Then we're seeing a view of the earth, then we're seeing a view of heaven. Here we're taken back into heaven again by John through this vision that he sees. Now let us consider this tonight, brethren. Up to this point, as we have seen, the Lord God has mingled his mercy with his judgment. Up to here, until we get right to this chapter. And we've seen it, haven't we? We've seen the angels preaching the eternal gospel. We've been seeing people get saved during the tribulation. We again see God's judgment and his mercy being mingled together. And he did by his own good pleasure up to this point, has left ajar the door of repentance. It has been left open by holy God himself up until this point. After this, brethren, there is no repentance that's mentioned In fact, there's anti-repentance that goes on over and over and over again in the wicked, depraved hearts of men as they see God dealing out his righteous judgments and wrath. It's stunning when you consider that. It really is. As these, as I said, this humanity, the earth dwellers and their depraved hatred for God make their final choice to follow Antichrist, which is what they're doing what they have done. God here prepares his final set of seven judgments to be poured upon the earth dwellers in the kingdom of the beast. And again, brethren, again, as I said, this war that's going to take place isn't just among nations. It is nations, unholy nations, gathering against the holy, righteous God, thinking for a moment that they could actually win this battle. It's a stunning thing. There's going to be Armageddon blood flowing from, as we said earlier, from one end to the other. From this time forward, As I made my notes, there's only judgment and the wrath of God for all those who have indeed rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Moving forward, chapter 15 on, that's it. His wrath, the Bible said there, didn't it? His wrath is coming to the full. He's not going to water it down whatsoever. John tells us here in verse number 1 that he saw another sign in the heaven that was both great and marvelous. (laughs) And when John uses that kind of terminology, hey, something great and marvelous is, I'm seeing this. He's drawing our religious affections, our holy affections that are given to us by God, to something unique and marvelous. Great speaks of something that is important and astonishing. So John is seeing in this vision, he's saying, hey, I've seen this vision and it's great and marvelous. It's a stunning thing, he says. In fact, that marvelous has the idea of something to be wondered at. We've seen it before in the book of Revelation over and over again. And they marveled. They wondered at what God was doing. They marveled at what they were seeing. An astonished thing. John, as I said, sees here and draws our holy affections to the seven angels. Now, brethren, this gives me shivers up my spine to think of what is going to unfold. Because again, brethren, as I said before, these are the kind of verses that I used to read, that I did read, smoking a Marlboro menthol, sitting in my buddy's basement, drinking a Mountain Dew, going, can you believe what God said? Can you believe this? He didn't have any interest in it. Clearly, God was drawing me there. I had an interest in what, this was, what was being said. 
It's an amazing thing. And so it is great and marvelous. It is an astonishing, astounding thing that God is going to do. He sees these seven angels who have in their possession the vials, the bowls of the last seven plagues that the earth will ever feel or ingest. It is a stunning thing. Now that word plague... (laughs) In fact, what does John say there? It says that, that these last plagues, for in them is filled up with the wrath of God. Again, they're not watered down. These plagues that are coming are a most wrathful and full thing. That word plague means to hit. It means to give a stroke. It means to wound, to inflict a wound. God, in other words, is telling us that he's going to hit and he's going to wound the earth with his last seven plagues in judgment. In fact, this word plague which means to wound, which means to inflict, is used in other places in the New Testament. And I want you to see, to understand what this means. Again, let me give you the definition. To hit, to give a stroke, to give a wound. This is exactly what this word means. Look at Luke chapter 10 with me, if you would, tonight, just again to get a good definition of this word, of what John is speaking of here. Look at Luke chapter 10. Very familiar portion of Scripture to us. Again, We must always let the Bible define itself. It's not Pastor Mike up here saying, well, this is what the word means. No, this is what it means. This is literally what God is doing. He's inflicting. He's stroking. He's giving a wound. It's a stunning thing. Look at Luke chapter 10 there. Look at verse, again, number 25, a very familiar portion of Scripture to us, but, again, to help us definitionally and biblically understand what God is doing. We find this word here in Luke chapter 10. Look there at verse Number 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's amazing, isn't it? You've got to watch out for them lawyers. <laughs> those lawyers are tricky, amen? Here in particular, it's a Jewish doctor. You've got to watch out for those guys. They're, they're tricky. I watch, a lot of, I watch a lot of weird cases on YouTube, and you've got to watch them. Look what he does here. And he, and he said unto them, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. (laughs) Something none of us can do. See, we're all in trouble just because of that. Just because of what Jesus just said. Because brethren, unless you're different than I am, you have never loved the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Always. Never. Unless you're different than me. In fact, I was telling Wendy, I'm watching this, this weird case. Maybe, Mark, maybe you've seen it. But there was a, 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 somebody who snuck into a house down in Idaho, into a, uh, what do they call those things? College students are going to, is it a frat house? They snuck into a frat house down there, and he killed four people in that frat house. Well, they figured out who it was now. They've arrested him. And it's interesting that he, when he was 17 years old, they found some writings that he had written. And he said this, and I'm going to paraphrase it to a, to a degree, but it really stuck to my mind when, the, when the, uh, the defense attorney and the lawyers were talking about it. He said this, this young man wrote back when he was 17, he's 28 now, back when he was 17 he wrote this. He said, there's not a man on the earth, there's not a document on the earth that can tell what's wrong with all of us. He doesn't know how biblical that really is, right? 
Because there is no man-made doctrine uh, document that can tell us what's wrong with all of us. But there is one inspired document that can tell us what's wrong with all of us. And you know what it is? It was the murder in his heart because he killed those four kids. That's what's wrong with you. That it is ingrained within you. That is your nature. It's a stunning thing. Yes, no, there is no man-made doctrine document that can tell us. But there is an inspired one that directly tells us that murder comes where? From the heart. It comes from the inner man. And that's, I thought that was really interesting. 17 years old, had no idea. And he said something so biblical that most, well, ding-dongs wouldn't know if it hit him in the face. It's a stunning thing, brethren, to realize this. It comes from the heart. But look at here what he says. He says in verse 28, And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, Who is my neighbor? I love that, don't you? Listen here, verse 30. Here's the word that's used. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down to Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him. Do you see that word right there? That's the same exact word that John is using in Revelation, plague. It is something where God is going to bring a wound. He's going to stroke. He's going to inflict upon the earth these things. Here we see it just laid right out for us biblically in a biblical definition of what God is doing. Look what it says. And wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. That's the idea. This is the stroke. This is what God is doing in the book of Revelation. This is what he is unfolding and going to do. Look at one more, if you would. Look at Luke chapter 12. Luke was kind of had a, a niche for being led by the Spirit of God to use this terminology. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to all of us. Look at verse number 42. Luke chapter 12, look at verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find uh, so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that, the, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But and if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens and to eat and drink and be drunken. The Lord of that servant will come in that day when he looketh not for him or for an hour when he is not aware. Isn't it a beautiful, you know, here we are again. We're waiting for the Lord, waiting, patiently watching. We don't know the exact hour, but we're waiting and watching. But look, he warns those who are not. Amen. Verse 46, and the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him and an hour when he is not aware and will cut him asunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many what? Stripes. That's the idea. This is exactly what God is going to do. His judgment is going to bring a stroke. It's going to bring many stripes upon the earth through the plague, through this terminology, this word that's used to God as he as he deals out his retribution. The Bible says there, if you will, verse 48, but he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with a few stripes. There it is again. The idea is to inflict, to stripe, to have these things take place. In fact, we see here in the book of Revelation that this word plague is used one final time. And brethren, this should bring every pastor Anybody who ever teaches the Bible 
great discern, great concern. Let me show you the last time it's used in the book of Revelation. Look here at verse chapter 22. Again, a very familiar portion of scripture to us. This idea of God inflicting, this idea of God, if you will, uh, inflicting a wound, giving a stroke. Careful, Bible teachers. Look here at Revelation chapter 2, the last time it's used. Look what the warning is. Look what God says. If you do this, I will indeed, I will hit, I will give a stroke, I will indeed wound if you do this. Look here at verse number 18. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of, this prof- of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, woe, brethren, don't be adding things on to the word of God. Now, people think it's just the book of Revelation. Yes, the things that were done in the book of Revelation. But I can take you the Old Testament where God said it. It is a common thing. We don't add to or take away. But look into what he says. If any man, uh, verse 18, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy's book. If any man shall add, add on to these things, God shall add unto him the what? The plagues that are written herein. There it is again, brethren. When you are adding to the word of God, when you are taken away from the word of God, he is going to stroke you. He is indeed going to wound you. He is indeed going to inflict great wounds upon you. The last time in the book of Revelation this word is used. He warns us to not add to the words of this glorious prophecy. I like what another pastor said. He said, when the lashes of God's whip of judgment begins to fall on the beast world system, there is nothing that can stop it. Nothing. Nothing whatsoever that can stop the carnage that is about to be inflicted on those who have rejected the Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can envision, this is the idea. This, the God of glory, the God of holiness, the God of perfectness, when he lashes with the whip, there's going to be great wounds, there's going to be great strokes, there's going to be great stripes. And this again, brethren, is the idea that John is indeed teaching to us. It's a stunning thing, brethren, it really, really is. Well, let's just look there, as we, and we'll close with this tonight. Look at verse number 2 of chapter 15. So verse number 1, where John sees this great sign and great and marvelous in heaven, the seven angels, who are about to be distilled by God in chapter 16, where things really begin to unfold. But I want you to see in the midst of all of that, again, the glorious work of God, and what God is doing again, and what he has done up to this point. Look at verse number 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And again, brethren, when you see the word mingled with fire, it always has to do with God's judgment. Just like the altar, who had the angel that came out of the altar that had the power over fire, it's God's judgment. It's being mingled here. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? When you look at this. Look there. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten victory... Over the beast, number one, just we see the total character here of this beast, of this evil entity that is, that is being used by Satan. He just, look at the descriptives, four of them, and then we'll finish with this. I really want to go on to the songs they sing 
two songs in verse number three. We'll do that, Lord willing, next week. And it's interesting, brethren. Well, let's finish this, and we'll read verse three together, and I'll give you a little thought for next week as we consider what verse three says. Look at verse number two. And I saw, as it were, the sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten victory over the beast, number one, over his image, number two. I mean, there's a, just a deep description here that John gives. And over his mark, three, and over the number of his name, four, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. What an interesting text. What an interesting verse that God had John put in here. John literally sees, brethren, some believers standing on the sea of glass mingled with fire, which, again, we remember, it speaks of God's judgment being firm, amen, and sure. That's literally, we looked at this a while back. I don't know if you remember that or not, but this is literally what it means. God's judgment is firm and it is sure to come. And here we have these true believers dancing, if you will, upon this sea of glass. And we know they're true believers because of the victorious description that John is led by the Holy Ghost to give us. Number one, and then we'll close with this. They had victory, John says, over the beast. And you remember, we define this thing. This is just a glorious thing, brethren. This is the work of God alone. This is God in salvation. This is God in preservation. This is God in all of it. Because nobody will have victory over the beast. You remember the definition of the beast? Dangerous, venomous, wild, evil animal. Literally, that is what that word means. So he says that these who are dancing have had victory over the beast. Secondly, they had victory over his image, his likeness, his, his resemblance, if you will, his representation of idol worship. Literally, think of what John is describing here for us, brethren, in this text. The beast, his image, victory, John says, over his mark. And again, the sovereignty of God. That mark, you remember, we looked at his etching, his stamp, his badge of servitude. These are the glorious servants of God who have been imputed with the righteousness of Christ, who are dancing there. They have victory over all of it. <laughs> Only by the gracious power of God. Look at their victory over the number of his name, his earmark and seal of ownership. All of it, brethren, laid right out there for us to see. What an amazing thing. The victory imputed them by God through the power of of the gospel of Christ. This is the glorious thing. In fact, it, this description, brethren, leads us to verses 3 and 4, and I want to just read verse 3 and verse 4 tonight, and we will finish. And Lord willing, we will take it up next week here. So verse 2, and the glorious, victorious description leads to the actions of verses 3 and 4. Brethren, what else could one do when the God has saved their wretched souls from the image, from the mark, from the number of his name, from the beast. What else can one do except this? Verses 3 and 4. Look there if you would. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Notice, brother, not one song, two. It's really interesting as you compare these two songs, which, Lord willing, we will do next week. One sung by the Red Sea, this one's sung by the Sea of Glass. It's stunning. It really is when you see and understand how gloriously they are worshiping the one who saved them from the character of the beast. Look at there, verse number three. 
And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works. They sing about God's works. Well, what did Moses and the rest sing about? I mean, it's an amazing thing. You lay those two songs side by side, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb that's being sung right here. Incidentally, did you know that the song of Moses, i, I, I got to stop, but we'll, again, refresh our memories next week. Incidentally, did you know that the song of Moses is the first song recorded in Holy Writ? Did you know that? You want to know the last song recorded in Holy Writ? Right here, the song of the Lamb. Think of that, brother, for a moment. Think of how glorious that is. You lay them side by side, and they are synopsis of one another. It's a stunning thing. They sing there first, Great and marvelous are thy works, one, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, two. You go look at the song of Moses, and guess what they were singing about? They were singing about his works. They were singing about his ways. They were think, singing about his power, how mighty God was when he sent the horse and the rider into the sea. It's really quite amazing. It really is. Just and true are thy ways, thou king of the saints. Verse 4. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? They're giving him glory. They're singing of God's glory for what he's done. What did Moses and the gang do? They sang of God's glory for what he had done when he buried them in the sea, when he took them out of Egypt by his strong arm. It's amazing. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou art holy. Finally, look what they do. They sing of his universal worship. He's the king of kings. For all nations shall come and worship before thee. And believe me, brethren, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. I guarantee it. They will come and bend the knee before the king of kings. What a glorious song. And look at finally, <laughs> they sing of his judgments. Look at what they say there, lastly, for thy judgments are made manifest. It is an amazing thing as we close this evening. Let me just say this. We'll take it up again, but just for you to think about this week. The song of Moses, as we all know, was sung by the children of Israel when God, by his strong arm, delivered them out of Egypt and Pharaoh the song of the Lamb is sung by the saints here of God because by his strong arm he has delivered them from the Antichrist. Think of this, the similarities, the, the side by side. The song of Moses was sung by the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb is sung here on the Glassy Sea. The song of Moses was to praise God, listen, brethren, for bringing his people out because that's what he did. If you pay careful attention to this song, they're praising God for bringing his people in. Stunning. Stunning. Absolutely stunning. As I said, as we close, when one lays these two songs side by side, the last song is an inspired synopsis of the first song. Quite stunning. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. What an amazing thing for his people to sing. Amen? Again, he drug them out of Egypt and he brought them in here. Stunning, just stunning, amazing work of God. Well, let's, uh, let's close tonight. We'll pray together.